Welcome to our Listen, Learn, and Lead series of interviews with extraordinary leaders here at Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Today, I have the pleasure of being able to interview a number of our great scholars in our Space Systems Program. Importantly, our first one is Dr. Jim Newman. He's the chair of the Space Systems and Space Science Programs here at NPS a four-time shuttle astronaut with both, of course, U.S. and Russian crews. He's a graduate at Dartmouth College and of Rice University, where he got his Ph.D. And he's a leader in his passion for and dedication to our students and the student-faculty experience and how it not only shapes and informs science of today, but of the science of tomorrow and always leaning forward. Dr. Newman, thank you for being here today. Well, thank you, ma'am, for this opportunity to speak to you and to the broader community. Well, it's, it's a, a pleasure. Why don't you first tell us about your journey uh, prior to talking about the Space Systems Program, your personal journey and what brought you here? Yes, ma'am. I actually grew up in California, uh, in San Diego, and I left when I was 17 to go off to college and then to seek, follow my dreams, which was to contribute to our nation's exploration program through the Human Spaceflight Program at NASA. I was fortunate I was, was able to finally get in after three unsuccessful interviews, so I, I preach uh, persistence in everything that we do. I finally did get into the astronaut program, and I was fortunate enough to fly on four space flights, including the International Space Station and the Hubble Space Telescope. While I was there, I ended up marrying a Texas girl, and I figured I'd be in Houston for the rest of my life. But I had the opportunity to go to uh, Moscow and serve our International Space Station program. And when I said that to my wife, she said she'd love to go. She wasn't actually that time interested in coming to California to live. But after three years in Moscow, I guess California didn't look so bad. And so we <laughs> came here. Uh, I came here first as a NASA visiting professor for a couple of years. And then uh, Professor Panholzer, whom I'll have the honor of introducing you to later into our broader community, uh, convinced me to stay as a professor, and I saw this as a great way to follow up my NASA career by helping to teach those students uh, in the mid-career military officer ranks who are interested in space and who are our future astronauts and leaders in the space domain. So one of the things that you uh, and others had begun is the SSAG, our Space Systems Academic Group. Could you talk about that and what it does, a bit of its history and what it does? Well, yes, ma'am. I'm happy to do that and also to, to include some real history when we get to talk to Professor Panholzer. Uh, Alan Fuse, and, and we have a, a, a mural with uh, Alan Fuse and the two uh, NPS graduates who are unfortunately on Challenger in Columbia and Professor Panholzer and, and the founders of the Space Systems Academic Group. Of course, as you know, uh, NPS is fortunate and has been able to provide more astronauts to the astronaut program from its graduate student uh, ranks than any other graduate institution. Well, I think that the, that the number there is over 40, correct? Yes, ma'am, it is. And so we're very pleased. And, and in fact, one of our more recent graduates is going up to the International Space Station in, in actually just a few months. So we're looking forward to having another NPS grad in space. Uh, while we're down here applauding. And him. his name is? Victor Glover. Victor Glover, Commander yes, Victor Glover. Yes, ma'am. Yes, and uh, so that's an exciting time for us. Now, the Space Systems Academic Group has been around for over 35 years. And in that time, it has built strong relationships 
with many of the uh, uh, important national systems capabilities in this country. Uh, half of our graduates end up serving at the National Reconnaissance Office, for example, as well as taking their knowledge back to the fleet. And of course, we educate naval officers, Marines. We also have Army officers and Air Force officers and the occasional Coast Guard, as well as some international students as well. So we're able to take all of these people and give them an education that is really second to none. We work very hard to work with our collaborators and other universities in order to provide a really top-notch opportunity. So one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past, uh, amongst many other things, and interesting um, conversations about space and about your journey, but one of the things that we have talked about is your commitment to having an educational experience for any student, no matter where he or she ends up, about the concept of mistakes and of errors. Could you, could you talk about that in terms of you at, in your lifelong um, career in science and space? What does that mean for you in that learning experience for students? Well, I think that's actually a very important concept, and it is one for us as well. We offer students the opportunity to do coursework, but we also believe it's very important and actually an emerging defense challenge. We need to offer students the opportunity to get into a laboratory, such as we have here today. So we need to have people who do paper thesis, where they talk about um, strategy, where they talk about policy. But we also need to have people who go back to the fleet with a very deep understanding of technical hardware and software. Because what we've noticed is that the, uh, one of these challenges is really because all new systems seem to be increasingly technologically complex. And so we want our officers, at least a good portion of them, to be able to speak strongly when it comes to understanding these sorts of things. Now, we've all heard of Murphy and Murphy's Law. And what we realize, I realize in particular, not only from my own life, because anything that can go wrong will, and at the worst possible time. So that's why at NASA we spend a lot of time training. It's why the military spends a lot of time training, doing war gaming, trying to be prepared for when those things happen. We actually enlist Murphy in the teaching process. And because on the one hand, students actually don't appreciate it if we inject uh, failures ourselves. But Murphy will do it for us. And so what we found is that, and, and Murphy is very good at finding really weak points that need to be explored further, because that's the nature of technology. It's complex, and it's, it's rife with opportunity for, for failures. And also, failure at NASA and in the military has to be embraced as a human inevitability, mistakes and failure. But the question is, what do we as a team do to identify an error, a mistake, a possible failure, capture it, and bring it in. This is the essence of leadership and followership that we'll talk about. And that is finding those, this crew resource management. Finding errors, bringing them in, owning them, fixing them, moving on with an intact team and capability. So with that sort of as a background, we bring people, young students, into the lab. Some of them don't know how to turn on an LED when they start. But when they're done, they're designing printed circuit boards. So what a, what a fascinating thing that discovery is a way for the resilience of science to, to create and innovate and improve. 
what a, what a fabulous thing. Right now, we are in the what room? Just this, to, yeah. yeah, this is the Space Systems Small Satellite Laboratory. And so we have here the opportunity for students to come in and to use hardware and software as part of their coursework. And then, so we, we build these opportunities into the curriculum. So they come in here, they do uh, design courses where they're designing payloads, they do a design course where they're designing spacecraft bus. And then when they're ready for a thesis, they also have the opportunity to leverage this environment for the hardware software that they're working on at the time. And you call this the clean room, correct? Yes, ma'am. This is a large clean room. We also have an inner clean room, which is here. And this clean room is, as you can see, is walled off. It actually has other doors. And it is where, this is the inner clean room, the, the inner sanctum. And this is where the flight hardware goes. That hardware, which is going to go into space, is high value, where we have to fight even harder against Murphy teaching us. We don't want to have Murphy succeed when we're in this clean room. In this outer clean room, Murphy is welcome to run wild. We, we, just, we try to avoid unnecessary mistakes, but we know that they'll happen and that they'll be part of the learning process. But we move from the learning process here to the operational production process here, where we have, with students and staff, put real hardware into space on rockets that are worth a billion dollars and where if our stuff didn't work it could imperil the entire mission. So that gives us the flexibility to meet both realms. Well let's walk around the rest of, of the laboratory here. Yes ma'am. We have some uh, some hardware here that I'd love to show you just up a little bit. Okay. And this here what I'd like to show is just an example of a, of a directed study. And first, let me introduce the idea of a CubeSat, just briefly. So a CubeSat, this would be a 3U, where there are one U, another U, and a final U. So a CubeSat could be as small as one U. This is the size, current state of the art, of satellites going into space. From this size, and they've lasted and done good work for years. So the, the CubeSat form factor was originally uh, designed for educational purposes. But there were some in the community who realized that, well, just as this is about the time when, when iPhones were coming out, and if you'll permit me, I'll, people used to think that you know, these are interesting. It turns out these are much more than interesting. These are extraordinarily capable. We wouldn't go anywhere these days without them. Computers much more powerful than we went to the moon with, for example. There were those at the National Reconnaissance Office and other places who realized that these may actually have some uh, potential benefit for national uh, security space. And so we have been working with them ever since in order to do things that are important for our country. However, as part of the educational process, we use it as a form factor. It's hard to get things into space. So one of the things we like to do is we do high-altitude balloon flights. And we had a few of our students who decided they wanted to set the record by putting up something like this, a CubeSat, and you can see it there in the picture, a CubeSat. They wanted to send it up as high as they possibly could with a high-altitude balloon. Well, our summer interns, we have summer interns who are high school kids and college kids, and they actually had the record of 105,000 feet. 
And our military officers hadn't been able to beat them until this team came along. They decided they were going to see if they couldn't do better. And so this team, uh, led by uh, Andrea Ritt, Captain Andrea Ritt, yeah. was uh, uh, determined to do this. And so what they did is they sent up a high-altitude balloon with a CubeSat form factor up to 115,000 feet, setting a new NPS record. And that got them into the classroom working with hardware and software, into the laboratory working with hardware and software. So that is sort of a backdrop for some of the opportunities that we have. Major John Pross built a very nice satellite, uh, and he was going to test his. This is a comm relay satellite where if you're in an area of denied communications, it would be possible, for example, either on a, a small rocket or on a high-altitude balloon to send up something like this that would take communications from the ship over there, denied communications, up to this as it went up on the rocket or the, the high-altitude balloon, and then down to the troops who needed the communications. So he had a great thesis. He built up a beautiful payload. He put it on a fellow student's rocket. And unfortunately, the rocket uh, malfunctioned. It is rocket science. <laughs> and Murphy taught us some very important lessons that day. And what happened, you can see this nice plane here. It resulted in, when it hit the airstream, the actual flight article resulted in a rapid, unplanned disassembly of the payload. <laughs> when we went out into the field, we found that piece of metal which had been shredded by the atmospheric pressure of a rocket going Mach 1.5. So again, this is an example of where Murphy taught us a lot. This is an example where our students were able to beat Murphy and to succeed completely. But what we have found is that sometimes we learn more and our students learn more from the failures than the successes. The, failures of an early the failure of an early student thesis resulted in our capability to put a payload on the back end of an Atlas V rocket with a billion dollar satellite up top. Because he failed, we learned what we needed to learn in order to succeed. So that is why I feel so strongly, really, and, and passionately about the learning process and how we incorporate failures and mistakes and errors into it. So that launch made, made the news, as, as I recall. And now your plan is to launch a CubeSat in the next year or so? Uh, yes, ma'am. What we have now is a, uh, is a project with our, our uh, international partners, actually. It's a Five Eyes uh, project. The, the Five Eyes countries are the former English-speaking uh, colonies, right? Uh, England and uh, Canada and Australia, Australia and New, New Zealand. Zealand. Right? Right? And so we have a joint project with them to fly communications equipment into space as part of this Five Eyes collaboration amongst our allies. Well, the next thing I'm going to do is turn over the interview to you to uh, talk to one of our great uh, leaders and legacy leaders who, who still has an impact today. Would you please introduce our, our guest who's on, who's on the video now? That would be my pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, so now we're going to come over to, I'm going to introduce Professor Rudy Panholzer. I'm going to say just a couple of words about Rudy for the audience to understand who it is we're speaking to. Professor Panholzer is currently Emeritus Professor 
and before this current pandemic, was coming back to the office on a daily basis to continue interacting with our students and our faculty, and we really enjoyed that. Uh, Rudy was one of the original founders of the Space System the Academic Group, and he'll tell us a little bit more about that. Just a few years ago, he went Professor Emeritus after being the chairman for about 30 years and brought the Space Systems Academic Group to the place where it basically is today. What we've tried to do in the last four years has been to build on what he did and to make sure that the legacy that he's left behind continues on embodied in our students, some of whom you'll meet later today. And it's a, a uh, when we met, we found that we immediately agreed on many things, particularly the importance of hands-on education and the laboratory setting. So with that, Rudy, let me hand it over to you for a few words uh, as you can to tell us about your path, your path to where you are today, and the many things you did with the Space Systems Academic Group. Rudy. Thank you very much. Uh, Starting right at the beginning, I guess that's a good place to start. I came to MPS in 1964 from Stanford, where I spent 10 years. And I have been here ever since. And as Jim was pointing out, uh, 30 out of those 50-some years that I've been here at MPS, I've been the chair of the Space Systems Academic Group. There was sort of a break of six years in there where I was double-hatted, I was uh, the Dean of Science and Engineering as well as Chair of the Space Systems Group. Well, Professor Alan Fuse was the first chair, and that started in 1982 when we were a Space Systems Academic Committee, which two years later turned into a Space Systems Academic Group. And in 1987, Professor Alan Fuse retired, and I first really didn't want to become a chair, but they twisted my arm hard enough. I can still feel it today. <laughs> and so I said, okay, I will take it on. And it has been one of the biggest adventures in my life. And every moment that I've spent as a chair, I have enjoyed. I've tremendously enjoyed the students. Some of the students went on to become admirals and very important people. And I have also enjoyed the team that I've been able to put together. And in the final analysis, it is not NPS. It is not the group. It is the people that make it all happen. And I was extremely fortunate to be able to get a team of not only professors, but also of engineers and support staff together that enjoyed working in this environment. And as a testimony to that, they're still with us today after 25 some years. Yeah, as I said before, we are here for the students. If it wasn't for the students, we wouldn't be here. And we do build satellites and other things, but we're not in the business of doing that. We're in the business of education. And the satellites that we build and launch are sort of a 
very nice byproduct of this whole process. But the students, as well as the team, the Space Systems Academic Group, have learned enormously from those experiments. And as Jim was pointing out before, I very strongly believe in hands-on engineering and the hardware in the loop education, because that's where you can make the mistakes, and that's where you should make the mistakes. And if you only work on paper, paper is very patient. There are no mistakes on paper. It's always on time and on budget, but the real world is so much different. And I'm very happy that we have the opportunity here to teach and to show and to instruct the students in the real engineering aspects of space systems. Any questions? Well, thank you, Professor Van Holzer. I very much appreciate your time today. And I think, well, I think it's interesting that the professor said that paper is very patient and we do not discover mistakes so much on paper. We do it with our hands and, and our applied science. So I want to thank Dr. Penholzer for your leadership, sir, and what you did back in the 80s in space science and space systems. So as it is a cool thing to do today, it, it, was, it was a cool thing back then when you were the initiator and the originator and the leader in so many ways. Jim, at the end of the day, what would be, you've been around students and you've been around extraordinary scientists and extraordinary adventures and experiences and risk. What is your, if, if a student were to ask you, Dr. Newman, how do you define leadership? What would that be? Well, thank you for the opportunity to respond to that question. Uh, with, with Rudy in mind, I'll actually admit that I've uh, taken some of my lessons in leadership from, from Professor Panholzer but also from NASA, as well as from NPS. At NASA, there are a number of military officers who are serving in the astronaut program, so I was fortunate to benefit from some of their experience. I was also fortunate to benefit from the civilian ideals of leadership as well. One of the courses that we actually had in order to build this crew resource management culture of, of being able to understand that people make mistakes and that we have to, as a team, bring them together and deal with those. We went on a National Outdoor Leadership School, so leadership right there in the name, Knowles, it's called National Outdoor Leadership School. And they had some very good lessons, I thought, very appropriate for spaceflight and for myself in my own life. And they focused on three things, a leadership, followership, and expedition behavior. And I found that these lessons really resonate for my own life. Leadership, of course, well, let's just speak to a normal day. Many of us are called upon to be leaders and followers in the same day, at different times and often in, in, different, in different ways. And so what I think about is not only how can I be a good leader when the time comes, what is it that embodies that, setting a good example, having high standards, expecting the best that people can do, for example, not only of them, but of myself. But then there's the followership aspect of leadership. And that is, how can I be a good leader? When, when it is my turn to lead, I need to be good at that. Most of the time I'm following. I try to, be a, I try to follow my faculty and support them. 
So it's, it's one of these kind of the flipped classroom, the flipped leadership idea. How can I, as a leader, be a good follower when it's my turn to do that, to support the people who are working and for whom I'm responsible? So this is a very complex question, in fact, in my opinion, and deserves many different answers. So the thought I leave myself with when I think about leadership uh, is all of those things, leadership, followership, expedition behavior. We're all on this ship, we're all on this planet together. If we don't come up with expedition behavior, right, it's just going to be difficult. So that's where I would go with that question. Well, Jim, every time I listen to you, I learn things. And I just want to thank you for your dedication and passion about this mission and about the entire institution here. You've always said yes when we've asked you, and you've always answered the call. Most importantly, you've always answered the call for students when they ask you questions. And their journey is greatly advantaged by what you bring to them. And I just want to thank you on behalf of the nation for all that you've done for us, for the nation, and for science. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, ma'am.